I actually no longer think of parts of my identity as being strengths and weaknesses. I actually don't believe in this idea of normalizing what's good and bad. I am somebody who wants to fit in and feels lonely and is actually really good at connecting with people and, 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 and I can notice when it's happening and decide, is that what I want to do? So I'm conscious of it, if that makes sense. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Nick Mehta. Nick is the CEO of Gainsight, the leading customer success company. Prior to Gainsight, Nick was the CEO of LiveOffice, where he led the company's profitable growth and successful sale of Symantec. He is also the co-author of Customer Success, How Innovative Companies Are Reducing Churn and Growing Recurring Revenue. Nick has been named one of the top CEOs of 2018 by Comparably, was a finalist for EY's Entrepreneur of the Year, and holds one of the highest Glassdoor approval ratings for CEOs. In this episode, we spoke with Nick about the story of why he goes by Nick instead of Nikhil, having his visible identity be represented in tech, but not feeling like he completely belonged, and why going through similar experiences is an antidote to loneliness. Nick, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. One of the first questions that we love asking our guests is what their favorite dish was growing up. So what was that for you? Well, it's very interesting, Jay and Angie. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I just love that you're doing this podcast. It, it, the theme is so engaging and I'm excited to just be a part of it. We'll talk more about it, but growing up as somebody who was trying to figure out their identity and really, really trying to fit in as a quote unquote American, I would say my favorite dish growing up was Kraft macaroni and cheese with little cut up hot dogs in it, it with ketchup on it which I know my wife is like, that is the grossest thing I've ever heard, right? When I told her that, and that was, I'm vegetarian now, I don't eat that anymore. And I actually love Indian food now, but back then that was my thing. So honest answer. <laughs> no, the, the hot dogs and everything, my goodness, what an image. When did you, when did you start to uh, like your Indian food again? You know, it's, it's, I don't, it's, it definitely was probably like as an adult, my, my parents are Gujarati and, um, and I like, I like healthy food a lot. So like healthy Indian food. And my mother-in-law and my mom, fortunately, both live near us in California. And so honestly, the highlight of my week is Sunday. I drive to see my parents and my mom makes me, you know, dokla and idli and stuff like that. And then my mother-in-law comes over for dinner and makes this, you know, mixed vegetable sabji and okra and you know, roti and stuff. So yeah, so some period of my adulthood, I, I learned to embrace the amazing food that is Indian food. Transitioning from the uh, the powdered cheese and Kraft mac and cheese oh my to roti. God. I, that's my so goodness, what a one eighty! Now it's so gross. <laughs> like, how do they eat that? Yeah, exactly. And we love the food question because food is always such a powerful vehicle for yes. so much of our culture. And something you're mentioning in your food journey that really mirrors your own journey and your personal life is this process of embracing your identity. When you're growing up, you've mentioned that you almost actively rejected pieces of your identity, like speaking Hindi or some Indian traditions. And also your name is Nick. Right. So I'd love for you to talk through some of that. I feel like there's a lot to, to unwrap there. 
Oh, 100%. You know, and I think that's interesting because I think a lot of us are for are, are part of our identities, probably formed also based on our parents and them, their identities and their goals. And my dad moved here in ninth to, from India, and you know, he's Gujarati descent from India, grew up in Bangalore. He actually had an interesting kind of childhood himself where he was uh, Gujarati and but was born in Mumbai and then grew up in Bangalore and actually grew up not with his parents. His grandma and grandpa basically decided they wanted to raise him. And so literally, amazingly, his parents said, okay, that's fine. So he grew up, be raised by his grandparents, you know, didn't have a lot of economic opportunity as a kid. And, you know, he says he like studied under a street lamp. I don't know if that's a true story or fiction, but that's definitely what he said. And then he came to America in 1969 and definitely was one of these pioneers, you know, coming into America, like literally going to grad school in like, in like, Montana and Idaho, like places like you do not want to transition from Bangalore to Montana and Idaho in 1969, either from a fitting in perspective or purely from a weather perspective. And so he came in and I think, you know, he, my guess is he probably had to fit in himself, right? I mean, literally, like, think about it, you're probably one of the few people that doesn't, that looks so different, like in that whole state. And then he went, ended up going into the East coast and went into business and had a successful business career, just kind of some executive in some bigger companies and then CEO of some small companies. And so, you know, it's interesting growing up. I, I know my dad, like, I remember one thing, my dad's name is Ramesh and I know he went by Ron growing up. And like nowadays, I think a lot of American people would be able to pronounce the name Ramesh, but I could imagine in like the seventies, you know, it's probably pretty foreign. And so anyways, my parents gave myself and my brother names that felt like they could be more Americanized, right? That's a term that people use, you know? So my name is Nikhil. But I went by Nick. My brother's name is Samir, and he went by Sam as a kid. Although, interestingly enough, my brother later on embraced and kind of, you know, started calling himself Samir. But Angie, to your question, that's a long-winded preamble. I, you know, ended up growing up in a place where I just kind of like felt like I really wanted to fit in, right? I was actually super, like being honest, I was like embarrassed that I wasn't like all the other kids, that we didn't have a regular Christmas like everyone else, that my parents sometimes wore clothes that were different, that they didn't know what you were supposed to do for the, the PTA or the soccer team or whatever, you know? And so, yeah, when there was like Sunday school at the temple, I really didn't want to go. I wanted to like do whatever the, the American kids were doing, right? I just wanted to feel American. And it's interesting because we'll, we, I'm sure we'll talk about it. That term American, right? Like if somebody said, Nick, are you American? I'd be like, yes, if I had any identity, that's the one that I feel the closest to. But also like, am I American? Because growing up, I thought, okay, American means that you have to be white and like fit into that community. And by the way, this is nothing that was being done to me. Everyone around me was great. It was just like my own like feelings of insecurity around like, do I fit in or not? Which sort of probably have carried with me to this day. And then the journey to now very openly embracing your identity, being proud of your identity, could you talk through how you underwent that journey and any tips or insights you'd have for folks going through that same journey? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because my wife and I talk a lot about when we meet with people, like, you know, who do we connect with? And she also, there's a term in India called an ABCD, American Born Confused AC. And I'm like the ultimate ABCD, like the ultimate, ultimate. Like I don't speak Gujarati. I can understand a little bit. Definitely don't speak Hindi at all. I love American football, my Pittsburgh Steelers, I, I'll drink a Coors Light beer, I could be like a stereotypical American, but I also didn't have the same upbringing as people whose like parents have been here for many generations, right? And so we talk a lot about my wife and I that like, sometimes like, people we are able to connect with the most are people that actually had similar upbringings. And it just so happens, like a lot of our friends are like, 
also ABCDs, right? And it's not because we intentionally wanted to. It's just like there's certain people that we kind of like saw similar upbringings in and can really connect with. And so it's this interesting thing where I figured out, okay, there is a set of things I am. I am like intersectional in a different way. I am American and I identify with a lot of that. And I'm very privileged, by the way, extremely privileged. My parents grew up in a different place and I have a little bit of different worlds together. And I think that that it's just more broadly like getting comfortable with who I am and that I'm not one thing. I always think of myself as like this giant Venn diagram, right? You say people of Indian descent who were born in America, who grew up in Pittsburgh, who are a huge Steeler fan, who love Taylor Swift and quantum physics and are into software as a service and love being a CEO and love being a dad and are a bad golfer. And like, I'm in the center intersection of all of those things, right? That's just who I am. And by the way, the Venn diagram goes and goes, right? That That's my identity. And by the way, Taylor Swift has a good song about that too. But Angie, to your point, part of that identity is that my parents are Indian. I'm not just Indian, but I am Indian, you know? And I'm American. I'm like, like embracing the two parts of that and finding the mix that feels comfortable is a journey I've been on. But I feel like as an adult, I definitely have gotten more comfortable with that. Uh, Nick, I love, I loved what you just shared. It's such a beautiful, such a beautiful thing to, uh, I guess, encompass all of these different parts of your identity and all the different Venn diagrams of being a Taylor Swift fan and growing up in Pittsburgh. Um, even going back to like the name of like, my name is JD on the Zoom screen, but I go by yeah. Jay, like, you know, exactly. it's right. Yeah. And, it, and it's just, it's just like an interesting dynamic of wanting to fit in because that's what our parents wanted us to do. Because if we fat, if we fit in, then we, you know, lead to some level of success in the society we live in. But now, I guess we are able to um, not, we don't have to fit in as much or, or fitting in, fitting in isn't necessarily the best thing. And being yourself is, has been told to us to be the best thing. Um, I wanted, I wanted to loop back really quickly um, on your upbringing and how that's kind of impacted just who you are today. One thing you shared publicly is just being lonely in, in high school and being lonely in school. And, and I'd be curious uh, to a understand was there anything a part of this, like un uncovering your identity that maybe led to some level of that loneliness? And then, and then B, how has that, how has that loneliness impacted you today? Again, that's a part of, it's a part of your story that resonates really deeply with me and my own upbringing and my own high school identity and kind of who I've become today and how it's still impacting me today, honestly. Um, and, and just curious to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Well, thanks for being vulnerable yourself, Jay. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I, I was very fortunate to be in a, in a great suburb and, you know, good school and all that. My parents wanted to be there because it was good schools. But at that time, and this is sort of the late 80s, early 90s, it was probably, I don't know what the stats were, but it definitely felt like it was mostly people of white descent. You know, I remember as I, you know, from kindergarten, just onward, just for whatever reason, not feeling like I fit in. But I don't think that's just about how I looked. I think just personality and not finding my voice and, you know, being nerdy growing up and all these other things. Because of that, like I had this thing, which is like, I guess, which is I literally just never had anyone at school from like kindergarten through 12th grade to eat lunch with, right? Like ever, like not every single day. And so that, that lunch experience is like, honestly, like a little bit of dramatic for me, like still thinking to this day. Cause I was like, I wasn't comfortable being a loner. That person was like, yeah, I just want to be on my own. I was like, I really wanted to fit in. I was studying what the popular kids were doing, right? What they were all their whole lifestyle and their parents were at the country club and their parents were driving the BMWs and I was studying them. I wanted to be like them, but I wasn't them. And so I was actually very ashamed of being alone too. So I would like go hide in like the computer lab or the library and eat alone every day. And interestingly enough, we can talk more about my kids, but we've got three kids, 15, 12, and nine. 
and and actually they the two older ones are actually a little bit more on their own but actually like like my 12 year old eats lunch every day alone and i feel so sad and and our 12 year old like no i like that i'm actually good with it and so it's one of those things where i wasn't comfortable with it i felt very lonely i really wanted to fit in a fun story is like you know i kind of like thought that the popular kids got popular based on like the clothes they were wearing and in the 90s like that was when the like polo by Ralph Lauren was like a popular thing, right? And so I remember telling my mom for my birthday, I want to get like a polo shirt. And by the way, my parents were stereotypical immigrants were like, you know, $10 was an expensive shirt and we shopped at Kmart and all that. And so I was like, I want to go to the polo store and buy like a hundred dollar shirt, which was just like an unthinkable amount of money. And my poor mom, like I dragged her there and I wore it and I thought that was going to magically make me popular. It didn't, by the way, so it didn't work. But that feeling of like, I don't fit in, I don't belong, has been something that absolutely is there with me today to this day. And I have this crazy paradox, which is like, I'm in the software tech world and I know a ton of people, like a huge number of people, right? And I feel super lonely. And actually, I think some ways there's this like very stereotypical thing about CEOs being lonely. And obviously nobody should play any violins for CEOs. We're incredibly privileged and lucky. But there is this feeling of, gosh, I know a lot of people, but like, do they really want to hang out with me? Do they really want to be my friend? Do they really like me? I still struggle with all that to this day. My wife knows all about it. Even when I'm in a group, I'm always like, okay, am I the person in the group that is just there because like I'm there by default or the people really want me there. So that's something that, yeah, I do. I do wrestle with a lot. Probably one of the big themes in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it, thank you so much for sharing that and, and, and being open and vulnerable about this. Um, yeah. It, it, it's crazy that a lot of, you know, our insecurities when we're growing up end up uh, still manifesting today. And sometimes not only do they manifest, they actually become one of our strengths. And again, I'm, I'm, I'll speak from, I'll speak on behalf of my own um, story. I'm very lonely in high school, very similar, no like lunch friends, et cetera. Got to college, kind of learn like from a place of insecurity, learn how to make friends and learn how to and connect with people and, and, you know, and speak. But what, what are you doing about that now? Like, how are you, how are you thinking about that now is like at, at your um, CEO of like one of the best companies in the world and you're leading a team and et cetera. Like, is that still something that you're like aware of and cognizant of, yeah. or like, how, how are you thinking about that? I, I'm super, I'm hyper aware of it. And I think one, one of the things I've gone through in my own development, I actually no longer think of parts of my identity as being strengths and weaknesses. Like sometimes people say, oh yeah, I know one of my weaknesses, I've worked too hard or I feel lonely or whatever. I actually don't believe in this idea of normative, normalizing what's good and bad. I am somebody who wants to fit in and feels lonely and is actually really good at connecting with people and, 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 and I actually believe more in observing when those things happen and being able to kind of look at myself from a distance a little bit. So I can sort of see, okay, wow, you're feeling lonely right now. Okay. What are the things that you do to feel less lonely? And how do I go do some of those things to feel reconnected? So part of it is I've learned just who I am. I don't want to change any of it. It all fits together in some weird puzzle, right? Like that's me. I like it. And so I don't have any criticism of it, but I can observe it more. That's kind of one thing. But then the other thing is, and I think this does happen for people, when you have something that you've dealt with, you become more aware of it in other people. And so, for example, one of the things I very actively try to do is have people help feel like they can fit in, like in Gainesley, right? Or in a customer base or in a community. I really try to talk openly about these things and try to connect people together because it just feels really good to address that and to be open about it. So, yeah, I think it's, it's this self-discovery for myself, which really started with a CEO group that's called YPO. It's like a kind of popular CEO group. And uh, you get, you know, you bring in a coach and, you know, you kind of go through a lot of, a lot of the touchy-feely stuff around getting to know each other and getting to know yourself and 
personality assessments and so on. I don't know if you've, have you, either of you done Enneagram testing? No, it's a good, it's a good test online. It's a really good way to think about like where your identity comes from and where your energy comes from. A lot of it's based on sort of childhood development. I'm a three who is basic, like there's nine numbers and you, you identify with one of those nine and a three gets their energy and self-worth from like what other people think of them and achievement and all that. So it's some combination of loneliness and having, you know, immigrant parents who want me to achieve, like that is who I am. And I don't, I don't criticize that. I don't, I'm not ashamed of it. It doesn't control me either. I can notice when it's happening and decide, is that what I want to do? Or is that what I want to do? So I'm conscious of it, if that makes sense. I really like the point you brought up around reframing this idea of but and things being mutually exclusive into a huge Venn diagram of and, 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 and just opening up a whole world of possibility for what could be through all these introspections, right? And it almost sounds like- On that point, Angie, that's funny because like when when you, if you ask me about like worldviews I believe in, one of the worldviews I believe in is it's very limiting to think about everything being kind of binary ors. Like everything is like either this or that. And sometimes I think some of the best things out there about embracing the fact that multiple, even conflicting ideas can be true at t- at the same time, which is like a quote from F. T- Scott Fitzgerald. And um, in my super nerdy kind of like late night reading hole, I'm very, much very into like quantum physics. And one of the things that's beautiful about quantum physics is when you get down to the level of the deep nature of reality, things are neither here nor there. They're like in multiple places at the same time. And and so this idea that like duality is acceptable, things don't have to be binary. It's something I'm very passionate about. I love that. I feel like we can nerd out for just forever about this, but one quick nerd note. Recently read this book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Oh, Uh, Not sure if you've read it yet, but what you mentioned there just remind me of that. Yeah. It's like, it's not a duality of things being light or being heavy. You need like a a combination of both in order for life to be almost bearable, right? Because if you're out there floating in space and it's unbearable, if you have like the gravity of the world weighing on you, it is, it is as well. So duality is, is a lie and everything is just everything in between to, to anchor us back, I guess, a bit on, on this incredible story we've been talking about before this nerdy tangent, which is also very valuable. It sounds like, Nick, as your, your personal discovery and path was unfolding, it sounded like it coincided with your career path really blossoming as well. And we want to kind of weave these two ideas together of your personal and professional here, and especially through the lens of your identity, which is very multifaceted, as you've just mentioned. In what ways, in retrospect, do you feel like your identity has kind of supported your growth through your professional life? And do you feel like there's been any instances in which it's been an obstacle of sorts? You know, this is sort of one of your questions I reflected on a lot because I do think of my visible identity as generally speaking, giving me a lot of privilege because I work in technology and I perceive that there's like a lot of people like me, obviously a lot of big tech companies are run by people of either from India or of Indian descent. And, and so when I had my first kind of formative job was like, I, my first job was like starting a company. But then after that, like when I had to work for somebody, I felt like, okay, I, I fit in. There were role models, me people higher up in the company. And also I didn't ever feel like it was holding me back. But on the same time, every now and then we would do like my, my wife, which we can talk more about is super into identity. Like this is her whole jam. And she, one of the things she's done. And actually then I subsequently did with our team is one of those activities where like you ask people to kind of stand in a circle, like step in if you've ever been the only one to do X or the only one that has gone through this. And when I do those exercises, I realize actually my identity isn't like necessarily mainstream either. Overall, 
it felt like, okay, yeah, well, like being an Indian American person in technology, my visible identity actually felt like, okay, that fit in pretty well. And I didn't feel like it was holding me back at all. But sometimes I would go to like, as an example, this CEO group I was in, you know, YPO, when I joined it, there's a kind of section in each city. And so for the Bay Area, there's about 40 people in the group I'm in. And I remember going to the first cocktail hour, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And I was, I felt like everyone else was, you know, I'm white descent. You know, I was mostly men at the time. By the way, we've diversified a lot since then. But back then when I joined, it felt like I didn't fit in. Mostly I felt like I did fit in, but every now and then I'd have those moments where I'm different and I didn't know kind of where to connect. And a lot of it wasn't just like how I looked, but also just like um, upbringing too. You know, like part of it is like my, my parents, they did moderately well upper middle class, but they were immigrants. So, I mean, the joke, which I don't know if either of you can relate, we weren't allowed to order soda at lunch, right? Like that was a big deal. Soda is too expensive, like no drinks or like we'd go to like a buffet restaurant and like my parents would order like one all you can eat salad and like everyone would have the salad, right? Or I remember a time when we were going to like an amusement park and my brother was like four year, five years old and it was like children two and under are free. And my dad was like telling my brother not to say anything because he wanted to pretend he was under two years old. So some of that of just like having like a, a modest upbringing was a different way I felt like I didn't fit in, which wasn't just about my visible identity, but probably just like the thriftiness that some immigrants have. Nick, this experience with YPO seems very uh, meaningful for you and something yeah, that you've learned a lot from. Very you, much. Uh, you know, you, you've gotten a lot of your own identity um, from those conversations. I'm, I'm curious, like what you've learned from other folks that are at that level as well, at like the CEO level. Like, What are the things that people just don't really, I, I don't know, understand about these folks on a personal and professional level? Whenever um, I'm in these CEO groups, I, I kind of have two, two kind of conflicting thoughts in my head, of which both are true. One is that, wow, if you kind of looked at what these people think about in their day-to-day -day lives and they're not, not like the circumstance of their life, but the actual like feelings, they're quite similar to feelings every other human being has, right? Feelings of sadness or loneliness or achievement or depression or whatever. And we're all incredibly privileged. So there's lots of things we don't have to worry about. And so there's like, you can't forget that. Like every time I start thinking about God, it's so hard, whatever. I'm like, well, Think about the person that's like working three jobs just to be able to have their kids in like in like a public school or whatever, right? Or try to deal with COVID or whatever. And so incredible privilege, but that still human beings, human beings where because you're so privileged and because you like run companies or whatever, you actually don't have that many people you can confide in because you're in this kind of role of being a leader. And so sometimes these types of groups, and it, and it doesn't matter if it's this YPO group or some other peer-to-peer -peer forum, they're incredibly valuable. And that's like the, the meta learning I've had is, that, and I even apply this in my business, people get so much value connecting with people that are on similar journeys. And it, it's, you know, my, my company, we are basically selling software to suit new type of job in a company called a customer success manager, you know, LinkedIn has them, right? And um, we do all these events for thousands and thousands of events for these CSM people. And, and I, whenever we do these events, I always ask people, okay, how was the event? What was the best value? You know, we have presentations, we have information. Every single person, like for eight and a half years, the common answer is, I don't, I feel less alone. I feel like I'm not the only one going through this. I feel like other people are like me. I feel like I'm not crazy for thinking what I'm thinking. And to me, that's like within YPO and events and maybe even listening to these types of podcasts. It's just about people feeling like, gosh, I am less alone. You know, I am more connected to other people. And I'll make a plug. Our family is super into like musicals. And there's this musical called Dear Evan Hansen, which is uh, actually just made a new movie, just came out. 
And um, the musical is all about this kid in high school who doesn't fit in. And I won't spoil the plot, but it's a all about this idea of he feels lonely and then he figures out like everyone feels lonely and there's some kind of connection in that. And so this idea of letting people feel like, okay, there are other people like me going through similar experiences is actually incredibly validating. That is, I think, what we're all searching for is like, I'm not alone. Because I do think life is pretty lonely. So, you know, any those times when you feel like less alone are pretty magical. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, the, the loneliness um, piece I, I, I resonated with when I joined this current team I'm on on LinkedIn, I felt like an imposter. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I remember telling everybody, I'm like, hey, I feel like an imposter. Like, I don't have the banking background, consulting background, right. et cetera, business school, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it was hilarious because when you open up and, and, and you share that, everybody else also feels like an yeah. imposter. Um, feels like <laughs> and so if everybody's an imposter, then everybody belongs. If everybody's yeah. lonely, then ideally everybody can connect to one another. You um, got it. You the, got it. The, the, one, of the, one of the interesting things we've heard from um, a lot of our guests, given kind of how, where they came from and then where they are now, is the distinction between the privilege that they may have lacked in, in their upbringing through their immigrant uh, childhood and then the privilege that they have now, um, which which is honestly quite a dramatic change. I think I think all of us on this call have experienced that at, at some level. Um, and, and I'm curious how, how you went through that transition, but also more importantly, like how, how you end up raising your children with that perspective. I'm just curious what your reflections on that have been. Oh my God, I think about that all the time. Yeah, it's an interesting paradox because I think that people that don't come from much means, you know, have all this, often have this hustle with the hope that their children will have more means and more kind of security and all that, but also which means that their children might have less hustle, right? So it's it's like, you kind of have this interesting thing where the more, you know, the more comfort you give your kids, the, maybe the less hustle there is. And how do you find that balance? And Because I do think that one of the things that feels great in life is to strive and to achieve, right? Like I, I do believe that putting aside money, it feels great. Even if you're just like my 15 year old and I just started doing indoor rock climbing. And like, if you, every time, like you are able to climb a harder climb, it feels great. Like it feels great to try to do things and show that you can do them. That's like something that's beyond money. And so I kind of think a lot about how do we give our kids that feeling of striving and feeling of like, okay, you're trying to do things. And, you know, our, our parents gave that to us. How do we give that to our kids without making it overwhelming? And then at the same time, recognizing that, for example, let's say you were in the rock climbing analogy, recognizing that if you're like, seven feet tall, you naturally are, you've just been given better rock climbing ability, right? And so the same example, like if you grow up with money, that, that means you have a lot of privilege there from the beginning to get SAT tutors and the right counselors at school and access to go to the right colleges. I had that privilege because of my parents. Our kids have even more of that related to, to the circumstance they grew up in. I actually think kids of this next generation are so hyper aware of these things. And our kids are so, like they talk about this all the time. We don't talk that much about the economic circumstance of our life. They knew that, you know, we were very fortunate. We don't talk about just the actual specific numbers, but they, they see it out there of like just the inequality in the world and all that. So they're really, really passionate about it. So I think they're, they're sort of being educated by the world, Jay, as much as they are about us. And frankly, I'm being educated by them as much as the other way around. And, you know, my, I think I alluded to you in the pre pre-show that my wife, so she's very passionate about identity and kids and kind of kids understanding their identity. And so she started this community actually originally on TikTok, by the way, my wife is actually TikTok famous, which is a whole thing in itself. If you check out the normalizers on TikTok, that's her. And she started this community that's all about 
kids from LGBTQ backgrounds that feel like they don't fit in. So we talked a lot about identity here, right? But that's that's an, a really deep expression of identity. And so Jay, I've I've learned so much from our kids about identity and privilege. I would just say if I could be 10% of as aware as our kids are, I will be a better person. So I'm learning from my kids, uh, not the other way around. That's incredible, Nick. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think the through line in a lot of what you've mentioned so far and all these beautiful stories is this idea of an and mindset and how much that expands your worldview, regardless of whether it's at work, thinking about SAS or thinking about identity, thinking about all these different intersections of the world. As we come to the end of our time here, I wanted to end with your thoughts on some contrarian advice that you'd like to share with our audience. You've shared so many nuggets of wisdom so far, but love for you to share your perspective on what unconventional wisdom that you think would be valuable to impart. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Andrew, the biggest one is exactly what you said. This idea, the tyranny of the or, you know, the reality that, and there's a lot of power in and, and there's a lot of power in being willing to accept multiple points of view and like, like look at all them and hold them in your mind at the same time. I think one way that that I always find it interesting how people are able to, at the same time, kind of have super strong beliefs that whatever they believe is right, and yet be very critical of past generations and what they did was wrong and not recognize that future generations will probably look at us as as not being able to see everything that they did, right? So one of the things I think a lot about is what are the things that I will judge myself for in the future as of what I'm doing now, or future generations would judge us for, right? So example, you know, we all, I think hopefully 99.9999% of the world would say a lot of things that happened, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, people being against like interracial marriage or, you know, gay marriage or whatever, those are horrible. And I can't believe people did that. But we are all practically doing some things now that people in the future will look at and say, you know, hey, why can you believe those things? And so what are those things that like we're doing now that we'll, we'll want to look back and say, we should have been much more broad-minded. How do we figure those out sooner? And we'll never figure out the thing a thousand years from now, when we're all robots, there'll be something people look back. We'll never figure that out. But 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what are the things that we wish we'd been doing ethically, morally? To me, that's like one thing I think a lot about, and I think we should all think more about. But if I made it more practical, like in business, because a lot of people probably listen to business, the thing I, I, I'm on a passionate campaign on is eliminate this term, a player. I hate this term like, hey, we hire A players, A players, high A players, don't hire B players, don't hire C players, right? Like, and it's this idea that somehow people are magically graded in some system universally, and it's just about getting the best people out there. I totally disagree in my experience. I actually believe that the vast majority of situations a company, it's actually about getting the person into the right situation where they can be successful. That means situation includes like the manager, the culture, the onboarding, right? The right role for who they are, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of companies miss out on management's responsibility, making people great versus just finding great people. I think that whole concept is totally wrong. Like, yes, there are some people who have very unique skill sets out there, but that doesn't always make them great at every single job, right? There's no, there's not a great person that's great at every job. There's a bunch of people at Gainsight that are doing amazing at their current job and and actually been here a long time. But along the way, some manager was like, I don't know if they should be here and I want to let them go. And I'm like, okay, that's totally fine. But 
Are we sure that they're not just in the wrong role? And then we figure it out. Actually, they're in the wrong role. Let's get them into the right role. And now they're thriving. And people would say they're one of the best people in the company. So I, I know like a lot of people are in this world of like, got to fire people fast. You got to hire the eight players, cut the fat, treat all that, those terrible analogies about like treating human beings like they're just numbers. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be performance oriented, but I think we should also recognize that a lot of human beings and making them successful is about them being in the right circumstance for them. So a player, it's a term I just don't love. I'd love to get rid of it. This has been an A conversation though, oh, <laughs> between yeah. uh, with an A player, you know, I don't a hate plus. the word. A plus, A plus. I'll tell, plus. My, I'll tell my mom I get an A plus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, Nick, this has been such a pleasure. We so appreciate you coming onto the podcast and having this incredible, open, vulnerable conversation with us. And hat tip as well to Ajay at BCV, who was gracious enough to make the connection. Nick, thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.